Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and um, I'm very happy to have back on the podcast today uh, a repeat guest, one of um, the earlier guests that we had on the pod, Stephanie Burt, um, who devoted listeners will remember came on um, probably about a year ago now to talk about the poet Randall Jarrell. Um, today, Stephanie has returned to talk about a poet who is less well-known to me, and I'll bet to many of you, but deserving of our attention for sure, a poet named Alan Peterson. Um, and the poem that Stephanie has chosen for our discussion today is called, I Thought All Life Came From the Alphabet. Um, I want to remind you that there will be a link to the text of that poem in the episode notes. So for people who'd like to look at it as they listen to us, you can do so there. Um, I told Stephanie before we started recording that I would keep her intro brief this time since she was on once before. Um, and since I'll bet many of you um, know who she is already, but let me just remind those of you who don't or who need the reminder that Stephanie Burt is the Donald P. and Catherine B. Loker Professor of English at Harvard University. Um, her most recent book, which is a book of poems, Steph is a, is a poet and a critic and scholar. Um, her most recent, I, I, th I think this is the most recent book, yeah, Steph, is We Are Mermaids, um, which came out in 2022 from Grey Wolf uh, Press and is a marvelous book of poems that I highly recommend to you. Um, I will supply links in the episode notes to other publications. So if you want to check out Steph's critical work, um, you can you can do so there. Um, Steph has been in the news most most recently, I think, because at Harvard she's she's teaching a course right now on um, Taylor Swift. Um, Taylor Swift, alongside um, and with respect to um, literature, and um, and that that course, once word got out about it, um, caused quite a buzz. Uh, maybe it's um, something we can um, check in on a little bit today. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. How's that? How's that course going? Are you, are you enjoying it so far? Hasn't started. First lecture is Monday, and uh, I'm really hoping more people add it than drop it after that lecture. <laughs> yeah, uh, really, my metric for success there. Yeah, no, I, I understand. I'm, I'm sure it's attracted a lot of attention on campus as it has, um, I can tell you, off campus. Um, I, I am curious, um, and, and maybe just before we, we dive into the, um, to the poem in question today, yeah. um, about the question that it raises, which I'll bet you have interesting things to say uh, uh, about, uh, namely, uh, you know, this is a podcast that's devoted to the close reading of poems. And um, there is, of course, a long tradition um, uh, or a long uh, history of the relation between song forms, popular song forms and poetry, uh, you know, what yep. we sometimes call lyric poetry, depending on um, the kind of poem we're thinking of and the moment in time in which we're using these terms. Um, how do you think of the relation between something like um, song and popular song and poem, um, lyric poem. Um, how do you think of um, the question of whether song lyrics um, 
sort of reward close reading in the same way or in analogous ways to the ways poems reward close reading. Um, how, how has that informed your, your design of this, of this course on, on Taylor? I'm going to give you the short answer, the medium answer, and the long answer. Oh, all of them. Okay. Right. Uh, the short answer is that, of course, pop song lyrics aren't the same thing as modern page-based poetry, and neither of them is the same thing as a screenplay, a comic book script, an opera libretto, a stage play, or a novel. Those are all art forms that use words. They're all art forms where you can study how they use words and how the words work emotionally, narratively, intellectually. They're all art forms that I think ought to be studied by people who do literature. I enjoy them all, but they're different. And of course, you can try to study the words in, um, you know, a Lanford Wilson play using the same tools you'd use for a Walt Whitman poem or an Elizabeth Bishop poem, but I don't recommend it because plays are different from page-based poems. That's the short answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so songs um, are too. Yeah. The medium answer is that poems are different from one another too. And the magnifying glass and the sort of calipers and compasses that you use for Langston Hughes poem aren't exactly the same as the toolkit you'd use for a James Merrill poem. In fact, when you just named Elizabeth Bishop and Walt Whitman, I found myself thinking, oh, I think I probably read those kind, kinds of poems differently. Usually. Right, yeah. right. Um, those are all people who mostly write page-based read them at home, you don't need to hear the voice of an actor or the voice of a poet, lineated works. They write modern page-based poetry, but they write different kinds. And we don't examine them using exactly the same tools. So yes, yeah, song lyrics aren't poetry in a certain sense, but you know, poetry isn't always poetry. I wrote a book about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the long answer which fascinates me more and more as I sort of do this longer and longer is that these relationships among kinds of poems, ways of being in the world and using language, ways of using your voice and playing music and singing mm -hmm. change over time as well as differing from one creator to the next. So that right now, in terms of the experience of the art forms that we have right now, there's very little overlap between what the great, for me, the most interesting and most emotionally resonant songwriters are doing, people writing words to be sung by particular singers with melodies mm -hmm. on the one hand and what various page-based poets are doing. But if you go back far enough, you can find times and places when that's not true, both in English and in other languages, right? There's a tradition of guzzle singers who are singing in Urdu and in other West Asian languages where those are 
quite self-consciously being written to be read and to be sung. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sonnets develop in the Western world as sonnets, partly in opposition to stanzaic lyric poetry that is being written to be sung. Sonnets, 14-line units that don't have a chorus, are not primarily written to be sung. But that's Mm -hmm. a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite books of literary criticism is a book by a medievalist at Stanford named Marissa Galvez. I recommend it a lot. You know that book. Oh, I, I, I was talking to Marissa the other day, but go on, please. You know, yeah. I've met her once in a car for 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I, I would love to talk to her more. She made a really important discovery, which is that Western notions of the lyric poem as something that's like a song, but not a song Mm -hmm. develop out of literal song books, books of words to songs in Western European languages in the late medieval period, which at first are written down so that people can remember or learn the lyrics to songs And then they start sharing the lyrics without the music. And then they're like, hey, we can go somewhere with this and we can build on this and make it into a page-based art form. So the kid who is studying Taylor Swift liner notes, let's say, while listening to an album, reading the lyrics or reading them on her phone or whatever as she listens on on whatever streaming service. Let's update the the, uh, image here. and then starts experimenting in her journal at writing her own words down in some kind of imitation to or relation to the song lyrics she's been studying and who winds up writing not songs but poems, something you and I might more easily call poems, is, um, is doing something very old. Um, is, yeah. Yeah. And I... I am uh, historicist enough to think that you can follow this progression, sometimes in people's lives and certainly in in culture. I am anti-historicist enough to think that (laughs) this is a progression or a development or a differentiation that happens repeatedly, and you can find it happening in non-Western cultures as well, Mm -hmm. where people write down songs Mm -hmm. and the words to songs that are meant to be sung. And then as literacy spreads and it becomes easier to read words and to circulate words that are not being recited, the people who are writing the words, the people who are reading the words say, Hey, there is something song like about this. There is some figurative relationship to the human voice and to emotion and disposition and interiority. And maybe even structure, structures of refrain and yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of other things have structures. Chess games have Mm -hmm. structures. Mm -hmm. This this phenomenon is, is, I think, specific to expressive communication and language. Mm -hmm. There's something about voice and expression and inwardness where pieces of language written down to be read by people who aren't going to sing them figuratively resemble songs. And you see this in the reception of Sappho. 
I don't read Korean, but I'm pretty sure you see it in the history of early Korean poetry and song. You see it in Western Europe. And you see it anywhere that people are writing down the words to songs. Eventually, someone's going to say, hey, I kind of like this. But what if I made it so the words didn't need the music? And that's the big difference between modern song lyric writing and page-based poetry writing. I should add that hip-hop lyric writing is neither of those things. It's its own thing, and it's kind of in between. And I defer to Adam Bradley and other scholars of hip-hop on how that works. Yeah, But it's hip-hop lyric writing and performance looks more like pre-modern orature, yeah. like long poems that have oral formulaic aspects, like the Iliad, that are meant to be recited, but are not primarily short-form melodic entities. Right. I have all kinds of thoughts, and I know we want to get on to the um, to the poem at hand today. But one yeah. thought, just as a kind of passing observation, is that in Farsi, the the verb for to sing is the same as the verb for to read. Um, you know, hunden, which is which I've always thought is, is a very interesting thing. Um, um, and, is there a and, separate verb for recitation or is singing reciting? No, that's the either. same thing. You'd use the same verb for saying a poem or for singing a song or for reading silently. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, the, um, the other thing I just sort of am noting in passing is that, you know, obviously history doesn't proceed ever quite as neatly as we schematically sometimes want to represent it as proceeding. But I, I'm thinking, okay, so let's imagine in some sort of crude history of things, there is there are song forms, and then somebody, as you say, you know, having written down the words to songs, thinks, oh, this this is kind of fun to do, even without the musical accompaniment or without the intention to sing it aloud. Uh, so in this way, you know, poetry would develop as a kind of like closet drama version of the dramatic arts. But that's but, the, the point, the, the further point that I want to make is once that has happened and now poetry exists as a page-based genre, let's say, yeah. presumably it there are, there are kind of feedback loops that develop where it it can now influence songwriters and, and sort of on and on we go, right? So, That's right. I mean, anything yeah. can influence songwriters. The other, th and this is the, the, um, the other part of this this development and this sort of differentiation of art forms as more media become available mm. is poetry becomes its its own thing and starts to develop when you have a separate from song once you have writing mm. and it changes again once you have print yeah and it changes again once you have cheap print, which means you get the rise of the novel, which means people are less interested in narrative poetry, which means that people who are serious about arranging words with a great deal of attention to sound and being poets are more likely to focus on lyric and expression rather than storytelling because you have cheap paper, so you have novels. Uh, and then you get recording, right? Yeah. Because it's it's 
what happens when you get these differentiations of genre over centuries and over decades, it's not just that people who want to only use words and write for the page no longer have to think about singability unless they really want to. It's also that people who are doing songwriting, no matter how, well, it's people who are doing songwriting once there is recording. Yeah get to write for individual voices in the way that certain 19th century composers are writing for particular performers, mm-hmm. right? List writing for Paganini or something. Um, you can write a song for your own voice, or you can write a song for somebody else's voice. And you can use as many cliches as you want. If they sound right, you no longer have to be, if you ever had to be, a memorable user of words to write song lyrics where the song works, but you can. Mm -hmm. Um, The history of songwriting in the era of recorded music gives you songwriters where you really can put a lot of pressure on word choice And I think that Taylor is one of them Mm -hmm. and also songwriters where the words to the song are much more conversational and less interesting in terms of close reading. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first figure comes to mind is Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks. Like the first (laughs) three Buzzcocks albums are great and the words do exactly what they need to do and they're moving. Mm-hmm. And you know, ever fallen in love with someone you shouldn't have fallen in love with is a wonderful question to ask, and it's the linchpin of Pichelli's to my for money money greatest song. But it's not terribly interesting in terms of diction and imagery. It it works because it interacts with the song construction. Yeah, and. Modern songwriting lets you do that, especially modern songwriting in the era of recorded music. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm glad I asked. I'm glad I asked you the question because I I knew we'd get a fascinating answer. Um, Today we have, um, you know, I want to say at first, and I'm I'm obviously in some kind of literal sense, um, this is true, a a poet who writes for the page. Yes, very much. Primarily, though I have to note sort of, I hope not too pedantically that my encounter with Alan Peterson happened not strictly speaking on the page, but on my screen. And I wonder also, you know, as, as these sort of new technologies come in, Stephanie and put different kinds of pressure on genre formations, what, um, what the internet, you know, if, if cheap paper did, did something to the way we think of, or, or to the way people produce things like novels and poems, what, what has, or what is the internet doing? Um, to our generic con- uh, conventions uh, right now? Oh, I, I love that question. So that's that question has two answers, neither of which affect the poetry of Alan Peterson. Yeah, so maybe we should give them briefly and then and then move along? Or what do you think? Do you want- No, I can answer them briefly. Uh, yeah, Alan Peterson's great, should be famous, isn't famous yet. We are working to make him famous. Stay tuned. If you've tuned into <laughs> Alan Peterson's poetry, thank you. Yeah. 
If you've tuned in and you are an editor or a publisher and you have some interest in publishing Alan Peterson's poetry, get in touch. There's at least one book that doesn't have a publisher yet that's quite recent because uh, people are silly and don't realize he's great and he deserves to have the same career shape as A.R. Ammons, uh, who is someone who's – they're both tremendously intellectual, tremendously brilliant and fun fun writers who are discursive and conversational and science oriented and philosophical and unmystical and who've lived their entire lives outside the giant cultural centers where you get to have drinks with someone who then offers to publish a poetry book, <laughs> which honestly is the reason why he's not already published by one of our favorite publishers. Um, you, have the opportunity to show that he is the A.R. Ammons of our time. I am entirely serious. Uh, if you're not already an Ammons fan, uh, maybe, you know, we can work on that. If you are an Ammons fan, stay tuned. Uh, cause we're going to get to Alan Peterson, but first I'm going to answer Cameron's question, which is about the mediation or the, in some ways, disintermediation, the new media effects of the internet on new poetry? That was the question, right? I think so, yeah. Okay. So short answer, if we define poetry as a whole bunch of words arranged so that they can be read aloud by anyone or read silently, they don't need expert performance by an actor or singer, uh, in a way that is structurally and acoustically interesting and emotionally expressive. The internet makes it easier for people who aren't already publishing books to circulate the poems that they write, especially young people who are online more on average. And that has had an effect, an obvious effect in that you get sort of insta poets, people who write very popular poetry who are often quite young and their readers are quite young and it's not terribly subtle. Mm. It's not terribly interesting to me, except as a matter of sociology, but it means a lot to people and it takes its place in the line of extremely popular, but maybe doesn't hold up under repeated listens poetry of past generations that circulated in newspapers and in printed books and on records, right? Rod McEwen and James Whitcomb Riley and so on. Um, however, the ease of circulation in particular among young and online readers of poems by young and online writers has also done much more interesting things for poets I do like, who I do think reward repeated attention about immediacy and neo-confessionalism and always feeling slightly off and having no boundary between public and private and trying to keep readers engaged all the time and hold people's attention mm -hmm. and has generated, I think, especially in the 20 teens rather than, you know, this second. A number of writers who came up in the 20 teens who are unimaginable without the culture of people being very online, without Tumblr and Twitter yeah. and fan spaces. I'm thinking in particular of Patricia Lockwood, 
yeah, and right. of Harold Lindsay Bird and her cohort in in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Yeah, I was thinking of both those names as you were talking. Good, yeah, so, good, yeah, yeah. Um, Hera, Hera, any minute there's going to be a second Hera Lindsay Bird book, and um, I am looking forward to it. Good, me too. Uh, yeah, and there's other other discussions to be had about whether people still read and to what extent the advent of the web and people living on our browsers and TikTok and Instagram mm -hmm. have encouraged the rising generation to rely more on images and less on words, um, more on video and less on audio. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hope that's, I'm, I'm overstating it and overthinking it because I am such a word girl and and the girl who wants audio to be more important than video unless i'm actually reading a comic book well setting aside audio and video there's also a lot of text online after all that we i mean even if it even if it's on my phone i spend a, I, I, I may spend more time reading now that i have a smartphone in any yeah, given day than I text. yeah and well i'm reading all kinds of things yeah yeah the thing that I'm seeing not in in us, like we're on our phones too much, like people of our generation, more or less, I know you're younger than me, but like you're over 25. Yeah, um, by a bit. That's yes, good. yes, so am I. Uh, you know, people of our generation like are constantly checking our phones unless we are very, very mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. But we didn't grow up watching video essays. I want to learn about something complicated. I am going to try to read about it. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of Zoomers can read and they even read novels sometimes. But if they want to learn something, they're much more likely to look for a video essay. Mm -hmm. That matters a lot. I don't know where it's going. Mm -hmm. I think we've already seen in terms of how the dominance of video and of amateur video and of small circulation video affects poetry. We've seen that because when it was the 90s, slam poetry, stage-based, performance-based poetry was just a different thing from the kind of poetry that I enjoy reading and writing and writing about. Mm -hmm. That is obviously no longer true. Right, the the rising generation, the generation that has risen at this point, the Dennis Smith generation, are people who start out as performance oriented poets and keep some of that performance orientation as they write books. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether the video essay generation is going to keep some of that as they write books if they write books well, we'll i suppose the the um the sort of trivial answer is inevitably and we'll see what it what it's like you know um okay yeah. so so alan, alan peterson stephanie um you you've uh, you've anticipated uh, an early question i was going to ask for you which was just to sort of situate the uninitiated with, with respect so to the good. 
Um, your your the, example of of A.R. Ammons I found interesting. Could you tell us just a little bit about who Alan Peterson is, sure. um, sort of biographically, but then also with respect to your understanding of of sort of poetry movements or schools of poetry or what? Yeah, he's so good. So my. I, I, you know, I used to spend a lot of time in bookstores and in record stores. And in both of those places, I was happy to find work by people I already admired, but I was really looking for discoveries. And I would go through poetry shelves in new bookstores in new cities and used bookstores and just pull out deliberately random things to see if I liked them. And Mostly I didn't. And mostly, honestly, I would take things home and listen to them or read them and then say, you know, this, uh, the luster has gone off this. Uh, it is, as Merrill says, like adding silver to quicksilver, the, you know, mm. the, the shine vanishes overnight. But every so often you find someone who's really good. And Peterson's first book, which came out in 2001, is called Anonymous Ore. It was published by an upstate New York press that no longer exists. And it turns out he'd been publishing in magazines for some time before that during the 90s. And I found myself just going back to this book and getting more and more out of it. And I found out who he was when I realized that I wanted to write about him. And during the late 2000s and... 20 teens he published i think five more books i think there hasn't been one since 2021 uh i, I know that long ago we're not it wasn't we're, long ago but but we're not all stephanie burt <laughs> well i think he writes poetry faster than i write poetry because oh, okay i'm <laughs> i spend a lot of time typing essays about how other people's poetry is good that's right you're busy As do you uh uh He's, there's, I mean, there's, there's a backlog of books that he's written and, and that haven't appeared in the world yet because he's had a pretty interesting life, not like an adventurous, he was an astronaut life, but a life of very serious artistic creation lived apart from the large cities where trade publishers and fancy parties happen and you can make personal acquaintances with uh with gatekeepers and where you know nepo babies get their poetry published mm -hmm. uh, and I, I recognize that some of my favorite poets are nepo babies uh, but he's really not one he's someone who has been serious about writing poetry since i believe the late 70s but whose training and whose career has been as a painter and as a teacher of painting. And I believe that for a great deal of the 80s and 90s, he was the chair of the Department of Studio Art in, I think, Pensacola Community College. Mm -hmm. He was the chair of a visual art department, and he was a painting teacher in a community college, a two-year college on the Florida Panhandle. Not because he's from there, but because that was where he got the job. Sure. And he's been extremely interested in the life sciences 
and in ecology and plant and animal biology. And those are kinds of information and kinds of observation that enter the poetry in a way that is tremendously minute and detailed, uh, cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, to quote an earlier poet we both like and who he likes. Mm -hmm. uh, his wife is a conservation activist and did a great deal of work fighting environmental racism and doing habitat protection in Florida. And now I believe does that work in Oregon where they have, they've retired. They live in Oregon most of the year now. And so there are Pacific Northwest landscapes along with Gulf coast landscapes in Peterson's work. Gotcha. He's tremendously observant and descriptive and detailed and understands in the way that Hopkins and Bishop did the multiple feedback loops that perception and putting perception into language mm -hmm. make for people trying to observe just what's around us. He understands, as Bishop says, the way that the, the observed world is a moving target, but the archer is also moving. Mm -hmm. He's just super smart. Yeah. And the poems are beautifully observed and full of feeling and introspective and somewhat shy. They have convictions, often ecological convictions, but they don't, they're never a speech to a crowd. They really are introverted or intimate yeah and they never sound like ammons mm -hmm. uh, largely because peterson is a poet of visual art and studio art and of the life sciences where the point is to to really describe everything minutely and the life sciences tend to proliferate vocabulary right you use a lot of words right um and Ammons, who was trained as a chemist, mm -hmm. is really more of a poet of the physical sciences. He looks at trees, mm -hmm. but he's more interested more often in laws of physics and in large patterns and, and in weather patterns. Um, Ammons is a, a poet of physics and chemistry and sort of ontology. And Peterson, who really, everyone who's an Ammons fan should be reading Peterson and everyone who has the power to publish Peterson <laughs> should be doing so because he's not going to show up and make connections for you and give you a fellowship and judge your manuscripts and uh, generally exert institutional power well you've, you've made us you've made a strong case but i i have a feeling it's, the poem will make its own case well the uh, poem is i mean the poem is the basis of everything else i just feel like it is literally my job it's the reason it's worth <laughs> paying me anything uh to I'm, I'm oversimplifying but not much like if if it's <laughs> If it's if it's if it's worth it to the future of literature for me to have a job, which it might not, uh, it's not because I love John Keats more than you. No matter how much I love John Keats, he doesn't need me. I need him. 
Uh-huh. It is my job to yell at the world until more people publish Alan Peterson's books because they are wonderful and they will make your life better. And they are quiet and they are subtle and they do not fit the prevailing narratives about where poetry is going any more than Ammons did. Or Niedeker, honestly, for a while. Uh, yeah. Niedeker appeals to certain kinds of interest in extreme compression, which is not... I mean, Peterson actually writes wonderful six-line poems, so he's sometimes compressed also. Uh-huh. Uh, he doesn't have the same kind of like relationship to the avant-garde. He doesn't need it. But, you know, it frustrates me that Alan Peterson is not already famous, and I want to do what I can to make him famous. And that means sending people not just to the poems in a book like Fragile Act, which was published by McSweeney's something like 10 years ago, which is a wonderful place to start with him. Good. Um, or to his book from a few years ago published by Salmon in Ireland, which I think is called As Long As. Mm-hmm. As much as, as much as. Uh, but also to what he's publishing right now in our leading literary magazines. We're going to talk about a poem that I think is an excerpt from a longer poem because Ammons does this too. Mm-hmm. He's a discursive poet who is easy to quote and easy to excerpt, but who does just go on thinking. Wordsworth did this too, where you can take mm-hmm. slices of the prelude and say, hey, mm-hmm. here is a slice that works on its own. Was it for this or nutting or something? Yeah. But he is someone who thinks, going back to your earlier question, not in song forms, but in beautifully expressive and detailed and intricate discourse. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, this, so this, this poem was originally was, was published in Poetry Northwest. Yeah. And, and um, I take it, Stephanie, that you suggested it, it, it seems to perhaps be from a longer work because... Uh, below the title appears the the sort of subhead from and then capital P capital C pleasure centers, which yeah. sounds like it might be the name of a longer work. Um, I have not asked Alan Peterson, but I, I suspect that it is it. It may be. It's a great title. <laughs> it's a great title, and it, if if you are the sort of book publisher who would like to make an impact with a book length poem. Uh, Find Alan Peterson in Oregon and say, "Hey, can I publish Pleasure Centers?" You'll be glad you did. Great. Well, let's let's okay. um, let's, let's hear let's the poem. It. Yeah, I, w- Stephanie, would you would you please read? I thought all life came from the alphabet for us. I would be honored. So this is Alan Peterson's newish poem. I thought all life came from the alphabet, published recently in Poetry Northwest. I thought all life came from the alphabet, from numerals peptides, counting petals for love, hallucinations, platelets stacked in the breakfront that words smoothed over irritants with pearl, that salt over my shoulder seasoned danger to taste, that a glass door might close and trees and islands might rush by soundlessly like remembered lives like silence we have other names for. Guilt was one that made threatening worlds by itself. That everything was true. Even a lie was a real lie. That a name we made up 
was like remembering in detail someone we never knew. My own examples arriving nightly as if contracted with dream trucking of Stockbridge and Locust Grove, Georgia. I could get up early from another world and listen, study the bird books, the songs and calls rendered phonetically the way my turn signal says frisky frisky as I wait. I expected the purpose of consciousness was to recognize poignancy as an antidote to the cool neutrality of space and the flaming stars like bouquets shipped in from Amsterdam and Oregon, the spider that dropped on a silk thread and struggled in the tub. It is written, it was said, as a finality. Even if the writer worked for the Black Duke, or the Chamber of Commerce. You have my word on it, hand on it, a book, a note, a dying sun behind a cloud. Sometimes I thought, what was there left to talk about? Then wisteria fell on the cushion, and my condition was upgraded from swell to ecstatic. That's great. Yeah, it really is. It we, really is. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. We've just heard Stephanie Burt read Alan Peterson's recent poem, which appeared in Poetry Northwest, I Thought All Life Came from the Alphabet. Um, Stephanie, this is a poem whose, um, whose title is its first line as well. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, why not? Let's just take that as this kind of first unit for our for our attention. Um, you know, what, what kind of, um, (laughs) thought is being offered in that first line? Uh, What, what's the kind of view it's expressing or what's the mood of its expression? Um, I'm curious about, you know, that, well, the, the, you know, just as a starter here, the fact that the verb is in the past tense suggests though it never really asserts. I once thought this, now I no longer do, or something like that. Yes. But, but what kind of person thinks that all life came from the alphabet? What would, what would it even mean to think that? It's an absurd thought, but it makes a kind of sense. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not true, but it's not absurd at all. I, I'm, you know, I resemble that remark. <laughs> Wallace Stevens often resembled that remark. Yeah. Someone who lives in language. Someone who looks around... And sees, as Stephen said, men made out of words. Um, and women and non-binary people made out of words too. And frogs and dogs and everything made out of words. Someone who loves and is so attached to linguistic systems for ordering things and finds such beauty in those systems mm. that rather than moaning on about the prison house of language is predisposed to believe and sometimes half believes remembers believing that it really is all language that the world can be thoroughly assimilated and mediated by words and numbers and humanly comprehensible systems with discrete parts and a syntax and rules. So thoroughly be- assimilated and mediated that it seems as though the world is generated by, by those things. Uh, I, 
I guess. All life came from the alphabet. Yeah. 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 This is someone who really believed in superstition, that a glass that salt mm-hmm. over my shoulder mm-hmm. sees in danger. Yeah. Someone who believed in the efficacy of language. Someone who believed that if you say something, children tend to believe this. If you say something, it is in some sense true. Even a lie was a real lie. Yeah. That when you make up a character, a fictional character, let's say, they in some sense exist. That the mind with its meaning-making apparatus fits into a world made of meanings. And one of the things I like about this poem is the way that it explores that hypothesis with humor and beauty. If you encounter, a, if you pass a truck on the Mass Pike that says Dream Trucking of Stockbridge, which is a town in Massachusetts, then you figure that the truck must contain dreams because mm-hmm. words mean something. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an attitude that is surprising and a bit dangerous because it means even bad insincere actors chamber of commerce people for example uh say words and the words change the world the words do something the word means something but it's also an exciting way to live because it means that the words that you're comfortable with the words that you understand the systems you can move among have power and consistency and won't let you down. You might be baffled or overwhelmed or frustrated, but you won't be plunged into a a kind of abject void of meaninglessness where words don't fit the world. Words do fit the world in this mm-hmm. way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And Peterson at the end, where the lines get shorter and the vocabulary gets less remarkable some of the time mm-hmm. and the phraseology gets briefly medical and there's only one word for a beautiful plant or a beautiful thing, wisteria. Poems that imagine a good fit between the system of language and the world, the, the phenomenal world, the material world, the world outside ourselves. Those poems, which have existed in Western languages at least since Shakespeare's sonnets, probably since Sydney, those poems generally do one of two things. They can do what the Shakespeare of the sonnets does and what Thomas Hardy sometimes does and what John Ashbery sometimes does, which is to say, oh dear, Stevens does this too sometimes, to say, oh dear, seeming is not being, language is not the world, my attempt to make everything make sense has failed. The dark lady lied a lot. My sex drive has gone into the toilet. I'm very sad because the world of reality cannot be captured in organized language. 
the only emperor is the emperor of ice cream, right? I was going to say, let B be finale of scene. Right? I was waiting for you to say that. Yeah. The um, Thank you for saying <laughs> you gotta, that. You, you got to give me a moment. <laughs> I, I'm giving you a moment. Uh, you, you can start a poem with your sense that language fits the world and then get really disillusioned and sad because it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Or you can be a rather thoroughgoing mystic. Mm-hmm. You can be the early Yeats or certain parts of Blake, or I suppose someone like Robert Duncan, who's just casting spells who I don't understand, but like my friends love him. There's clearly something or, there. Or maybe Meryl and Sandover. Oh, where, where really the whole life does come from the alphabet, <laughs> Stephanie, for, the alphabet arrayed on the Ouija board. Yeah. From God be. Um, We need to do this again and talk about a scattering of salts because oh, yeah. Meryl goes on believing that. No, I don't either. That's why I said uh, the Meryl of Sandover. But yeah, um, but, but say more. So sorry, you said there are two kinds. So there's the on the on the one hand, there's the poet who thinks actually reality is not sufficiently well described by language after all. There's a kind of disappointment yeah. or sadness to language, the arc of that yeah. poem. Yeah. Language on has failed other, me, seeming is just seeming what a bummer. And then there's a, a on the other of, hand, there's the mystical poet. And and then we we got sidetracked into deciding whether Merrill was or wasn't one. But say right. say more about that type. Okay. About mystical poets? Well, yeah. I mean, finish the, so what how how does the mystical poet, to use your phrase, Stephanie, avoid the disappointment that that's yeah. They they believe in magic. They they have either a deeply idiosyncratic sense of how they can arrange the world to their liking. Mm-hmm. Uh or they just actually you know rely on religion, right? Mm-hmm. Hopkins tends, you know, Hopkins tells us that there there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. Because the Holy Ghost broods over the world with bright mm-hmm, wings, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where you know secular language won't do the job, but language infused with the presence of Christ, who is ultimately responsible for the hesitas of all the the stuff we see, uh, mm-hmm. is is there. The word made flesh. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, the word made flesh stands behind words, which, and that's the reason words can be fleetingly or semi-adequate to flesh. Obviously, some Christian poets don't believe that. Some Jewish poets don't believe that, and so on. Eliot never believed it, but Hopkins really did. Mm-hmm. Um, but Peterson is neither a religious poet mm-hmm. nor a spell-casting, system-building, idiosyncratic mystic nor fundamentally a poet of dejection and disillusion and irony. He is, and I love him for it, a science guy. That, that, that's great. So I, I want to sort of pause here briefly because you unspooled this sort of beautiful reading that was picking up on, if, if, if our listeners weren't noticing it, I certainly was, um, words and phrases from later in the poem as we, as I, just asked you a question about the first line. And, and of course that kind of thing is inevitable and, and quite welcome. Um, when I hear that, but I, I want to sort of, uh, you know, reel, reel us back in just a little bit 
Okay. Um, here. Um, when I hear that first line, I thought all life came from the alphabet. And then I hear you begin to talk about it. What I'm picturing, Stephanie, in a way, maybe sort of predisposed to do this because of our earlier discussion of science, is yeah. like the periodic table of elements or something like that, where, you know, rather than having that sort of collection, I mean, on the one hand, I'm noticing that that periodic table of elements is represented by the alphabet. Um, but but I'm sort of replacing, the, you know, the the elements that are meant to be represented by that um, that chart and instead imagining now simply the alphabet itself. But then I, I noticed that, well, two things. One is there is something kind of breathless about this poem, which I think is a function in part of its lacking punctuation. And, yeah. um, and um, you read it beautifully. Um, but, and then also past that first line break and into the second line. I mean, if we thought the, the assertion was simply, I thought all life came from the alphabet. We, we see that in addition to the alphabet, we get a list of other things which are both like the alphabet in some ways. And in others, I think not um, from numerals peptides, uh, peptides are like, um, amino acid, uh, yeah. well, that's a joke about the alphabet, right? Because right. peptides, uh, th- that's peptides are molecules that are put together uh-huh. in cells. And ultimately the coding for everything in a cell is a bunch of letters, the way we understand it, that make DNA and RNA, right? They all come together from, if it's DNA, A, C, T, and G, the alphabet. And in fact, uh-huh. in that sense, because Good. all life on earth comes from DNA, all life does come from the alphabet as we understand it. And uh-huh. these things, which are just so beautiful line by line, right? Like, like Pope Spider and Whitman Spider, uh, Peterson is someone whose poetry really lives on individual lines. It's yeah. not just that he's got cool ideas. Every line does something fun. Platelets stacked on the break front yeah. is just an incredible sort of almost, it's not totally like Merrill because it's more science-y. Um, but Merrill never wrote a poem of science in his life, even though he believed that he was being told <laughs> to write poems of science. He's not a science guy. That's a separate podcast. We should do it. But platelets stacked in the break, break front means both that platelets, which help your blood clot, stack themselves. If you have a, a front break, if you get a cut in your skin, that's great. And it means little plates you might have a pastry on, like something you might eat a flan off, are going to be stacked in your break front. Those are platelets because they are part of the circulatory system of human social life, which has its own codes that are connected to, but not the same as the codes that build cells in your body. I should confess, I didn't know what a breakfront was as a as a piece of furniture. I looked it up though, and I and I now do. It's a it's a it's a kind of it, like it, it it's a word that could be used to describe like a cabinet that has a curved kind of front to it, in which you might stack your plates. Yeah, right, right. right. Okay. Which is why platelets is such a good pun. Right. Yes, right. Just the individual words here are so good, and the things that other philosophical poets tend to do with syntax and sound. Peterson sometimes does with word choice because his mind is so much a mind conditioned by observing a very fertile, crowded, seen world in the tropics, of the subtropics in Florida, 
and a mind conditioned by, and I don't know where he got this. He's not trained in biology, but did you ever do a quad rat study? Did you take like AP bio? I didn't, I, I didn't take AP bio. I don't know if I did that, but if I did, I don't remember it. So tell us, tell us what you have in mind. Oh, so a quadrat study. This is one of my favorite AP Bio things. I should, if, if he's listening, I should thank uh, AP Bio teacher Bill George from uh, <laughs> Georgetown High School in Washington D.C. You go into a forest, or uh, you could do this with the ocean floor if you want. You can do it with anything. Uh, you stake out a certain amount of ground, and then mm-hmm. you just count all of the living things mm-hmm. in that piece of ground. If you're doing it with a, a square foot of beach or a cubic foot of beach. Uh, you might count the clams and count those little worms that, that dig into the sand. And if you can do the sampling, you count the bacteria and you see how much seaweed is washed up and you see if there's any beach grass. Like if you're doing it on the forest floor, which is, is where we used to do it, you're counting worms and beetles and ants and different kinds of fungus and shrubberies and germinating seeds and uh you know squirrel feces to indicate there's squirrels there you're just looking at all the different kinds of life that are there and it you tends to expand your vocabulary i'm I'm realizing that the bell this this rang for me was not from bio but from poetry the the poet brian tear has um in the book doomstead days has a a a series of poems called something quadrats i think and Uh then that plays on just this idea. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that book. I know some of his earlier work. I got to look at that book. Yeah. But, but the, the getting back to the philosophical and epistemological disappointment of realizing that the world exceeds your words for it. And the world does not fit into any of the linguistic systems for organizing it that we have. That is not ultimately a disappointment to Peterson, mm-hmm. nor is it a truth that he denies by casting spells or going to church. Although, if you like doing those things, don't let me stop you. Instead, he demonstrates, and this is really rare. I want to say Ammons does it. Um, I think you could argue that Terence Hayes occasionally does it because Hayes is multiply minded in similar ways. Uh, what Peterson does at the end is to give us the intrusion of the phenomenal, not yet named world of experience before we have language for it. A tiny bit of new experience into the world of systems that this poet has inhabited. Hmm. And instead of becoming sad because the world exceeds our systems, Mm -hmm. or instead of insisting that his system includes it all, and instead of feeling deceived or let down, Peterson really models secular joy in observation. He does, and again, this is so sciencey. Um, 
he's thinking about the pros and cons of understanding life as systems and treating words as kinds of power. And then this piece of flower, a piece of leaf falls beside him. And he doesn't say everything dies like in Hopkins' Palm Spring and Fall. He doesn't say, well, I wasn't expecting that. I guess language is stupid. Uh, he, he doesn't insist that there is no ground of being and everything's terrible. He says, what could be better than the feeling of, of play within language? The feeling of play that also exceeds language. Mm -hmm. There is a kind of ecstasy in realizing that there's always more to learn. There's always more to explore. There's always something that you could harmlessly study and learn that you didn't know about yesterday. Well, the, the, the physicist or, or, or the chemist might think like everything that can exist does and our science describes it. The life scientist, on the other hand, to go back to the distinction you were making earlier, because the object of study is life and because of the nature of life, there will be something new, you know, tomorrow that that our language has not yet described. But that's that's you know. exactly right. That's exactly right. And Peterson in other moods can, you know, point out that we're probably killing off species of beetles faster than we can describe them. Um right. And he's very aware of that. Sometimes yeah. I think that some of his his most sort of nature-oriented poems are what would happen if if Merwin liked people. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna let that that comment lie for just a moment. Um you, I think, quite sort of persuasively um keep invoking science and describing <clears throat> Peterson as a poet. Of science, yeah. I just want to say, though, or 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 sort of um, make explicit a kind of nagging thought I've been having, which is that um, numerals and peptides surely sort of fit into the scheme that you've just given us. But something like counting petals for love or yeah. hallucinations, yeah. Um, doesn't seem to fall quite as easily under the kind of, um, and I'm, I'm playing the straight man here so that you can expand my sense of what should count as science, but doesn't sound scientific in the same way. It sounds instead, I don't know, um, superstitious or, um, or, or childish or what have you. So um, what's the view of science that you feel committed to here, Stephanie, that, that, that can account for something like counting petals for love or okay. hallucinations or hearing for that matter. I don't want to just stay with the first lines forever. We can skip around obviously and we already have, but hearing for instance, in the sound of the turn signal in my car, the word frisky frisky, which I just loved. That's, Me too. Such, a, that's such a great onomatopoetic. Good ear. That's how yeah. it sounds. Frisky, okay. frisky, frisky. Yeah. So, so yeah. So what what's the view of science that can accommodate those kind that kind of observational mind? I am I am happy to let you play the straight man, uh, <laughs> as as it were, uh, as it were, yeah, as it were. Um. So the view of science that can accommodate those kinds of uh, of phenomena, those kinds of feelings and and games, 
is the view of science taken by uh, Stephen Jay Gould in his great essay, Non-Overlapping Magisteria, um, in which he says, it's a couple decades old, Stephen Jay Gould is no longer with us. Uh, it, 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 if I remember the essay correctly, Gould is arguing that if you think science and religion conflict uh, and are at war, uh, you need to change your understanding either of what religion does or of what science does, because when they're understood properly, they simply do not conflict. Uh, if you are going to do observational science and do the natural sciences and do things that can be confirmed by independent observation or experiment and that are at least somewhat friendly to, to mathematical systems or uh, verifiable systems, you need to understand how much of human lives exceeds those systems. And you know, conversely, if you're going to talk about people's ineffable experiences of the divine, which you should if you have them, uh, most of my friends, I think, have them, um, you should understand that your ineffable experience of the divine doesn't change the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, they're just different ways of describing the world, and they can coexist in one moment in one person having experiences and making observations, even if they fit uncomfortably or paradoxically together in the same proposition. And those kinds of paradoxical propositions are what Peterson is doing in a poem like this. Hallucinations are absolutely the province of science. There are people, it's called brain science, right? Or uh, it's, it's called the science of psychedelic drugs. Uh, why is my brain creating this thing that I know, you know, doesn't exist and weighs nothing and you aren't seeing? Counting petals for love, on the other hand, is the first eruption or entry into the poem of the traditionally poetic and emotive and also demotic. Counting petals for love is something children do. Taylor Swift does it. Um, and the interesting thing there is the counting. Yeah. Even when Peterson thinks about romantic and erotic attachment between human beings, he kind of likes the counting part. Yeah, it's a funny way to describe that ritual, which I assume is the he loves me, he loves me not, or she loves me, she, whatever. That That's the thing. Right is, right. is that idiomatic to call that counting petals for love? I don't I don't no, know what it is. Yeah. No, but it builds on the idiom that Peterson expects us to be familiar with because he builds on every register of language available. He uses really every stop on the organ. This is one of the reasons I picked this poem among other recent poems. It shows you how good at deploying vocabulary that don't, don't doesn't how good at deploying vocabulary that doesn't even belong together Peterson is counting pedals for love they love me they love me not they love me they love me not kind of mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. tearing pedals off a daffodil or something um daisies it's supposed to be daisies isn't it because they have a lot of small petals goes so. with platelets goes with a break front goes with the way that pearls are made in oysters goes with yeah. common words like trees and islands goes with 
detachable propositions, like even a lie was a real lie, goes with vernacular observations like dream trucking of Stockbridge. And then we get words like phonetically mm. or neutrality mm -hmm. or finality. Something else Peterson is really good at is making abstractions make sense by dropping them amid sensory experience. Give us an example of that. It was written, it was said as a finality. What that means in context is that the previous Peterson who put his faith in linguistic systems treated all propositions as in some sense efficacious and true. Mm -hmm. And he says that, and he doesn't give us an example, and he doesn't give us anything to see or, or taste. And it takes a little while, he immerses that in narrative. It, it seemed to him, to the Peterson, the pre-Wisteria Peterson, as it were, that, that everything that mattered belonged in a linguistic system and everything in a linguistic system was in some sense important and valid and true and made its own truth. It's the language magic that children believe in. It's the kind of, of attitude that helps people write poems sometimes. Yeah. And the alarming, you know, an alarming thing about that belief is it means even when uh, someone odious whom we know lies a lot says something, it feels true and it changes the world. We now know a lot about propaganda. Uh, we know that when an extremely odious person gets on TV and says something a lot, it changes the world. Mm -hmm. Even if this person is a liar motivated by the most predatory versions of capitalism or by a wish for personal power in a feudal system. Mm -hmm. um, and Peterson knows exactly how far he can take those kinds of arguments before he needs to give us something else to see mm -hmm. a book, a note, a dying sun behind a cloud. Mm. Yeah. And just when you think the poem is going to end in this very Merwin way, where humans have soiled the world with language that we can no longer have faith in, and we may as well get off the stage, which isn't the only thing Merwin does, but it's frankly the dominant note in Merwin in many of his books. Mm -hmm. Just when you think that we're going to hear humanity denounced as liars, which, you know, that is a creditable position. And when I haven't had enough to eat, I feel that way myself. Peterson tells us what someone as available to equanimity, someone as observationally gifted and as flexible and as capable of calm as he is, can do with disconfirmation. Then wisteria fell on the cushion and my condition was upgraded from swell, I was feeling okay. <laughs> Pregnant, as Hopkins says, with words, 
Mm-hmm. To it's static. I, I was very happy. I was able to go outside my body. I was able to realize that I don't even need to leave my couch to have an experience of the world being more marvelous than I expected and of strange new worlds appearing that don't fit into my systems. Why wisteria? Why wisteria? Yeah. Uh, It's brightly colored Mm -hmm. and I believe it tends to be yellow. I think lavender. I think we can, Um, we can. There's wisteria in Robert Lowell that is yellow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is what happens when you yeah, when you learn you know, your botany right. from poetry. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm actually I'm thinking of Robert Lowell's poem, "The Drinker," that ends with "Oil skin yellow is forsythia." Let's take uh, a yeah. look. At no, was, yeah, forsythia for sure is yellow. yellow. Yeah, wisteria no. is in fact lavender. Yeah. Um, well, I also there's something about the way the word sounds too. Forget about what the thing looks like, right? I mean, if if all life comes from the alphabet, then then presumably we care we're inclined to care just as much about what the word sounds like as, as, as we are, what the flower looks like, or maybe we think moreover that there's some correlation that's real and not just arbitrary between um, what the flower looks like and what the word sounds like. I would say that you're overthinking it and that Peterson. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Well, no, I think Peterson who probably doesn't like Robert Lowell as much as I do, or think about Robert Lowell as much as I do, although he might, um, and honestly gets outside more, uh, does not expect me to confuse wisteria with forsythia. That's just me being a pathetic creature of words. It doesn't get out enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is important is that this is a brightly colored flower whose petals can be high up because it grows on vines and can fall. And that the flower petals are not bright red or pink. Why, would, would, why, why is that important? Because uh, they don't look like blood and they don't suggest Valentine's Day or erotic love. I see. I see. So you don't think as I do. You think I'm overthinking it if I say that there's something about the way the word wisteria perhaps echoes a word like wistful. Oh, no, it, it does echo wistful. I'm okay with that. I just think that the wisteria forsythia association is one that I need to get out of my mind. because <laughs> That, the was, that was your association. Not my, that's not yeah, me. Okay, yeah, I thought you were telling me that my association was okay. I think the no, wisteria no. association, it absolutely is there. And uh-huh. that that um, false cognate yeah. contributes to our expectation that the poem will end in disappointment. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. He's doing okay. Not the least of my favorite things about reading a whole lot of Alan Peterson poetry is that while he understands that equanimity is difficult to sustain, just like domesticity can be difficult to sustain, while he understands that as a species, we continue to be immensely destructive and collectively make bad choices and are sort of stuck in the tragedy of the commons and kind of suck in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It's also wonderful to be alive and to listen to other people and to take in new experiences and sustain bonds with the human and the non-human world. And he is a poet of very carefully articulated hope 
and joy and pleasure, pleasure centers, if you like. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we could use more of that in our lives. And he's so good at that. And this poem represents that ability in, in his work. Yeah. <clears throat> Even as it, it's so aware of all the things that can go wrong, my condition was upgraded, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that points back to things like Wordsworth's daffodils. Mm. But because Peterson understands that we talk about our bodies in medical terms as well, and because he likes faking you out, Hmm. He treats himself very briefly as a body in an emergency room or an ICU. Right. Being upgraded from uh, whatever, uh, critical yeah. to, you know. Yeah, you know, serious. Something. Right. <clears throat> um, I, I, I want to stay here with th this um, th these last lines of the poem, but I want to bring some slightly earlier lines to bear on them, which we've referred to in passing, yeah. um, but haven't talked about, I think, as much as perhaps we ought to. I expected the purpose of consciousness was to recognize poignancy as an antidote to the cool neutrality of space. Um, yeah. Hard to know exactly where to stop the phrase, but I'll stop it there. Um, that, that too is in the past tense. I expected, right, um, as the I thought first line of the poem was um first of all talk to us stephanie about that idea that the purpose of consciousness might be to recognize poignancy as an antidote to cool neutrality um it, is that is i mean i i my mind went back to that moment in part because of this conversation we were having about wisteria and wistfulness and and perhaps the relation to poignancy um but but I'm I'm curious what you make of 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 those lines that I just read and 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 what sort of continued life you 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 see that position as having in the final lines of the poem. Poignancy. So I think that Peterson does recognize poignancy as an antidote to the cool neutrality of space. I think that Peterson. And here I think a precedent might be hardy. I think that Peterson absolutely recognizes that we can have feelings about natural processes that we can project ourselves into and react emotionally to growth and entropy and flourishing and decay even though those would go on without us and maple trees don't really have feelings about the fact that, you know, they displace other kinds of trees and oak trees in turn displace them. And there's poignancy with that wisteria falling at the end. There's special providence, there's special providence in the fall of that wisteria blossom. However, consciousness does not have a single purpose any more than all of life can be described in a single language-like system. Mm -hmm. And that's the part of Peterson's expectation that he implies he has given up. Uh -huh. But he's not going to stop recognizing poignancy. Uh -huh. Why would you stop recognizing poignancy? <laughs> it's fun. I, I wouldn't. I'm a, I'm a sucker for poignancy. Me too. <laughs> 
Frisky. Frisky. One of, one of many things we have in common. Uh, that's wonderful. Stephanie, um, you've um, you've introduced me to a, a, a poet that I love and I'm Yay. And, I'm, and I'm grateful for it. And I'll bet you've done the same for many um, of our listeners. Um, so uh, perhaps I could um, invite you um, as a way to send us out um, to read the poem aloud one more time. Would you be willing sure. to do so? This is so much fun. Um, I would, you know, I want to come back and do this with you again and again, if, if, if your listeners can stand for it. Alan Peterson's recent poem, I Thought All Life Came From the Alphabet. And just so you don't confuse him with other Alan Petersons or Iversons or uh, Andersons, uh, that is A-L-L-A-N space P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N. I thought all life came from the alphabet, from numerals, peptides, counting petals for love, hallucinations, platelets stacked in the breakfront, that words smoothed over irritants with pearl, that salt over my shoulder seasoned danger to taste, that a glass door might close and trees and islands might rush by soundlessly like remembered lives like silence we have other names for. Guilt was one that made threatening worlds by itself. That everything was true, even a lie was a real lie. That a name we made up was like remembering in detail someone we never knew. My own examples arriving nightly as if contracted with dream trucking of Stockbridge and Locust Grove, Georgia. I could get up early from another world and listen, study the bird books, the songs and calls rendered phonetically the way my turn signal says frisky, frisky as I wait. I expected the purpose of consciousness was to recognize poignancy as an antidote to the cool neutrality of space and the flaming stars like bouquets shipped in from Amsterdam and Oregon the spider that dropped on a silk thread and struggled in the tub. It is written, it was said, as a finality. Even if the writer worked for the Black Duke or the Chamber of Commerce, you have my word on it, hand on it, a book, a note, a dying sun behind a cloud. Sometimes I thought, what was there left to talk about? Then wisteria fell on the cushion, and my condition was upgraded from swell to ecstatic. Well, Stephanie Burt, what a what a pleasure this has been. Thank you. That was um, Steph Thank reading. You. Yeah, my my pleasure. Steph reading Alan Peterson's. I thought all life came from the alphabet. Um, it's been a it's been a delight to think about this poem with you, and I really appreciate the time and the attention i i appreciate uh, this is so much fun let's do it again thank you so much for sure me. as long as i as long as i have a podcast you're you're a welcome guest on it um thank you listeners for hanging out with us um stay tuned please you know do all that good stuff like uh following the podcast leaving a Rate rating and review, review that's review the podcast on itunes and other platforms it really yeah. helps Share it with a friend, share an episode with a friend and um, read poetry. Uh, Be well, everyone.